Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. What do you have to report? Um, we got an advent calendar. Oh, uh, interesting. But Sarah had never seen an advent calendar before and she opened door number 24 first, thinking you're counting down to Christmas. Do they not have them in America? I don't think so. Not in Highland Park, mm. Illinois. So that's our little uh, that's our little drama this week. Are there chocolates in them or something? In an advent calendar? Oh yes, yeah. I wouldn't get one with just nativity scenes in it. I'm a sucker for the advent calendar. Are you, you're a big sucker for Christmas, aren't you? We do, we do. We we go big on it in our house. We have gone for the don't buy a tree, don't get a plastic tree, um, hunt and gather um, branches and twigs. And construct your own. What a beautiful childhood memory you're giving your sons to talk about in therapy sessions. Well, that's what I said to my wife. But she, <laughs> she, it was actually one of our children who said, I don't think we should buy a tree. It's environmentally unsound. That's um, great. And so we sort of, we hunted and gathered. I, I was extremely, I was like the sort of... Uh, truculent child in the hunting and gathering sort of generally <laughs> complaining about it uh as you can imagine um thinking it was neither exercise nor sort of you know and just generally like well you know i was just i was just a bit annoying i think um uh me me and my son sam i think both were sort of slightly contruculent uh so you you've started early with the bar humbug this year then other people have started early with christmas you started early with bar humbug i did start early but actually to be fair i then i've then sort of come round to it actually and i think it's sort of quite good and so we've got we have bought some gold spray paint which i'm not sure is that uh, environmentally friendly but anyway we we we're doing our best to sort of... Hmm. I mean, the way you're describing it, it sounds to me like um, an eyesore. I don't think that's very fair. 
particularly as it's, I mean, it's one thing for you to insult me, but to insult my wife's creativity, I don't think she's going to like that very much. I think you're not going to think that when you see it. I'm, I'm worried you might have your neighbours complaining about you lowering the tone of the neighbourhood, reducing property values. But how? With, I mean, is it going to be visible from the street? I'm not sure it is, no. Well, okay, okay, then f- fair enough. I mean, I'm slightly wondering, I, I think it's not, this is not fair, but I'm slightly wondering it's one of those things where the branches will stay in the corner of a room for sort of some months to come. <laughs> but, I, but, but, but I actually, I don't know. I think this weekend might be sort of the, the kind of moment of truth, actually, when it gets turned into a tree. Shall I, but, but, shall I report back on it? Yeah, it sounds like a, a compost heap sprayed painted gold. Well, I think we can put tinsel on it. It's just that sounds it's, nice. It's, you know, it's sort of you. It's circular economy using what's already there. Yeah, it's like the Wombles making good that's, use of the things that you find. Exactly, things that the everyday folk leave behind. Yeah, maybe you could put some crisp packets, some discarded crisp packets on it. I love the Wombles myself. Who who doesn't? I interviewed Mike Bat a while ago. Who's he? Mr. Womble, he wrote Remember You're a Womble and um, A Wombly Merry Christmas and all that. Oh, I seem to remember. Guess where he lives? Wimbledon. Yes. Isn't that satisfying? Now, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. Well, this week we're talking about rethinking the relationship between citizens and the state. Uh, People in progressive politics are very good at highlighting the problem of the markets and, and sometimes when businesses do the wrong thing, but can be less good about talking about how the state might do things badly and how things can be done better. Too often government can seem bureaucratic, remote and sometimes inflexible. This isn't the fault of public sector workers, but too often they can be restricted by rules set from above. Listeners may remember that we covered this in in an earlier episode, episode 48, with Hilary Cottam, who's written a book that a lot of people refer to called Radical Help. We're going to be talking, first of all, to Sue Goss, who's been working on how the public sector interacts with citizens for a number of years. Sue argues we should start to think of government as a gardener rather than a mechanic. And we'll be asking her what that means and what impact it could have. Then we're going to be hearing about a really exciting project in East Ayrshire, where the council has reimagined its relationship with local residents. We'll be asking what that has meant for staff, communities and local services. And then we'll be talking to Adam Lent, who runs a think tank called New Local. We'll be asking Adam why he thinks the state should be reimagined around what he calls community power. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, we are starting Christmas. We're dipping our toe in the Christmas waters this weekend. I mean, it doesn't sound as um, as festive as yours collecting twigs and uh, using spray paint on them. But we're going to see a Muppet Christmas Carol at the cinema. Wow. With Gene. Yeah. Has he been to see it before? I think he might have been with us when he was really small, but he, he didn't really. This right. is the first year he'll really be able to take it in. But it's it's brilliant. You know, I'm a huge Muppets fan, but Michael Caine, I maintain, is the best screen Scrooge. He he plays it with a straight bat and it's amazing. So uh, that's what we're doing. And is, G- is Gene looking forward to it? I think so. I've had a little bit of pushback from him, but... Um, right. <laughs> you know, We'll see how it goes. I'll bribe him with popcorn. What was the form of the pushback? Oh, he's going, oh, Daddy, do we have to see Muppets? I think I may have gone a bit heavy with the Muppets mm. since an early age. That's interesting. But Well, uh, well it's good that he's yeah. got his own tastes. I've told you he's started watching Octonauts in Welsh. In Welsh? Yeah, so the BBC iPlayer has 
a Welsh version. It must be from the Welsh language service. And he, he specifically asks to watch Octonauts in Welsh. Maybe he's going to learn Welsh. Yeah, or you'll certainly know a lot about Creatures of the Deep in Welsh. My goodness. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, uh, lock, national lockdown has finished and therefore outdoor swimming has restarted. Isn't it a bit cold, though? It is absolutely freeze your bollocks off cold. I mean, honestly, it was 7.4 degrees uh, Celsius or centigrade, depending on your preference. Oh. Uh, the first day I did it and 7.1 today. Um, I mean, we've now got into decimal points. We used to be just sort of all sort of rounded up or down, but now we're in decimal points territory. I mean, yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, here's my consolation. Yesterday I did sort of probably eight minutes and it was by the, by the time of the second lap, I thought I couldn't feel my legs. And today I did more like nine and a bit minutes and I, and it felt less, I felt like I had something left in the tank. Is this going to end up being very good for your health? Are you going to end up being like a British Wim Hof? Well, I think it'll either end up being very good for my health or catastrophically bad for my health. Uh, <laughs> uh, if I can put it that way. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. If, if, if the worst happened, none of us, not all of us want you to have a long life. Yeah. Would, would I be in the running for do the, doing the eulogy? <laughs> so grotesque you're such a man of bad I'm just, taste. Curious, just curious just curious i've done our eulogy before and i'm i no, am very good at i am very good you don't at need it. to you don't need to like sell your eulogy sort of abilities to me please thank you very much that's so macabre i feel like you're reframing the whole thing and not giving me an answer jesus christ <laughs> reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd i'm delighted to say that we're joined by sue goss who's a writer and consultant who's been writing, thinking and working on the role of the public sector, the state uh, and the citizen for a number of years. Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So let's just start with a sort of basic question. Um, What's wrong with how we often think about the role of the state, both in general and more specifically on the on the left side of politics? We've tended to think about the state and all organisations, but particularly the state as a machine. Um, and the left in particular, you know, the, the early years of the left got very excited about machines and technology and industrial process when we were setting up state interventions, the NHS, whatever. And we've tended to describe state action in machine metaphors. You think, you know, we have got we structure organisations with engineering diagrams. We write uh, corporate plans as if they're car manuals we say things like wiring and levers and engine and efficiency all our metaphors um, are about machine but the state isn't a machine it's a collection of human beings and it doesn't work like a machine but those metaphors create a mindset so that we think that if we intervene the way you would in an engineering system somehow something will happen And when that machine mind starts to break down is when we're facing, as we are with COVID-19, as we are with most of the wicked issues we're trying to deal with, we're trying to deal with complexity. And the only things that can deal with complexity are organisms. And we're not used to thinking the way we are as, as complex organisms. It gets worse in the UK because of how highly centralised we are. So we're the most centralised uh, government in Europe, possibly in the world. Uh, we have the largest local level of local government 
of anywhere in Europe. So Denmark was busily reorganising to have 50,000 population local authorities. Just when we were reorganising those ones to have 250,000 to a million population. So nobody else would recognise what we call local government as local. Which means that we've centralised power, which and over time, not only have we made local government bigger, but central government has taken power away from local government, which means that you tend to have very fragile, very specialised, very complex systems that are trying to be run from a single place. So when they go wrong, they go wrong everywhere. If you add in the Thatcher and Blair Brown government's bringing in private sector assumptions and values for some good reasons. But what that did was tend to make the state much more transactional. We tended to talk about customers instead of citizens. And we started to run centrally controlled and standardised systems which disempowered frontline managers, frontline workers, teachers, doctors, nurses. And we have a language. Now, if you think... I, it's just heartbreaking to me that if an old lady is stuck in hospital because there's no domest- domiciliary care for, for where she needs to go home, that's called bed blocking. You know, that's treated as an engineering problem instead of a human problem. And austerity just makes all that worse because what austerity does is it cuts out the plural solutions and it cuts out some of the thinking space and it reduces the number of people that we've got. So we end up with a system that is fragile, dangerous and likely to go wrong a lot. I think lots of well-meaning Labour governments have tended to take the sort of machine on at face value. You remember Howard Wilson called the state a car to be driven And it isn't. Um, And so we start pulling levers that aren't attached to anything. And we think if we just keep pulling the lever harder and harder, something will happen. But actually, there isn't a lever. There's some humans. And we need to start thinking about it differently. Now, you are a gardener. And I, I say that not simply for sort of horticultural interest, but because you've written a really interesting piece of work, um, about moving from the machine mind that you just eloquently set out to the garden mind. So talk to us about what it would mean to move from the machine to the garden mind. So, I mean, I've been working with public sector organisations for about 30 years. And if I think about how change happens there, it doesn't happen the way an engineering system thinks it happens. And be just being a gardener, wandering around my garden during lockdown, I was thinking, you know, nature, the way nature does change is completely different to the way we're thinking about change. Actually, what it does is find the spaces where there's room and it, it creates plural solutions. It doesn't just create one solution. It creates efficiency through redundancy. It has, it has spare. There's always extra. So it doesn't all have to work. There's always lots of different ways of doing things. And there's always enough for some of it to fail because it's decentralized and it's, it's not organized by one single brain. So I started to think, well, okay, well, if we start to use those ways of thinking, what would we do differently? And I think we'd start to think about experimentation we'd think about moving through mess and experimentation to order because nature always ends up with order we always get to order in the end we get to a balance 
But we're also thinking about balancing rather than thinking about, you know, fixing. So this part of this, presumably, Sue, is a sort of culture of experimentalism. Is that right? That 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 it sounds like what you're saying is that some things will work, some things won't. And government needs to be much more open to things going wrong and it not being a disaster. Yes. And there's a brilliant report I've been reading and I've got, I don't even understand who's written it. But there's a brilliant report that I will send you from, the fin- from Finland called Humble Government. And that's precisely saying that humble government is knowing that government is fallible and that things it tries won't work. And therefore, you need multiple voices. You need deliberative process. You need to create space for people to act autonomously. You need feedback loops where you share the learning. You need government to make things possible, not to try and... So if we were going to think as government in terms of garden mind, we would stop trying to drive the government and we'd start thinking about how you might be an enabler, a facilitator, a curator of stuff that's happening. And you would start to create the conditions in which a solution might emerge. You would, of course, devolve government, but not devolve government as in central government, bad, local government, good, but decision-making coming from the bottom and then central government having a role to help it, support it, remove the obstacles, help others to learn about it. Can you give us an example? I don't know if it's an example from real life or if it's an idea that's floated around. That would really clearly give us an idea of what it looked like in practice. So maybe talk about a need that the state currently meets with a machine mind and what that could look like with a garden mind. Let's think about care homes. You know, what we're doing is trying, you know, and there's lots of talk on the left about, you know, having a national care service, which is sort of bringing machine mind uh, front and centre to care. Let's have a care standard system and let's run it from the centre and everybody's going to have the same stuff. And actually care is one of those places where you need the maximum amount of humanity and the capacity for people on the front line to make judgments and understand things and build relationships. So a garden mind would start with the relationships between the people who are getting old and uh, each other and the other people that might help them. And it would start to build solutions from those conversations about what's needed, what's possible And then you do something that works in a local place and you wouldn't try and make sure everybody else does the same, but you would make sure that everybody else learned about what it was that you did so that they can copy it and people would share those ideas and eventually something would grow that would create a different sort of care. Do do you think there needs to be a shift, not just from the machine mind to the garden mind, but maybe in the type of principles uh, that that drive the role of the state and how it interacts with citizens and community groups and so on in the 1880s working people built an entire network of health systems social care support financial support working men's clubs labor clubs uh, lectures education there was an entire sort of welfare system built outside the state 
And then fork in the road, 1920s, 1930s, actually we moved to a much more centralised machine model, um, I guess. And even Beveridge has written and stuff that says he regrets the fact that he forgot about the voluntary sector because, you know, it meant that we crushed all of that. Now, there is still a very vibrant set of relationships in the third sector, the voluntary sector. That's all still going strong, but it's not as strong as it was once. And there are sections on the left that think, for reasons I do not understand, that that's somehow less good than the state doing it. So there tends to be a sort of uh, two legs, good, four legs, bad thing. You know, you're either on the side of the community and community action and you think the state and government's always going to be shit or you think the state's brilliant and voluntary sector stuff is, is dodgy, you know. And actually, both of those things are wrong. We need both. But what we're not good at is finding solutions that connect the two together using the best of what each can do. If local government or national government gets involved in something, of course, they bring money, but then they also bring rules and systems and procedures and they slow things down and it's got to be done in a certain way and the meetings only happen every six weeks because that's what the diaries look like, etc., etc., etc. If something happens in the voluntary community sector... It's strange, it's whatever they make up, it's slightly quirky. And when those two systems come together, they quite often collide. And often the state sort of intervenes and sort of squishes the really rather amateur stuff that was going on and tries to systematise it and worries about all the things that they're not doing properly. And then the voluntary sector people get fed up and then they go home and then they stop doing it. We we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, where Jeff is the um, benign um, ruler. I want to, I want to be less of an engineer and more of a gardener. But you want to sort of direct the gardeners, but you don't want to have to do any of it. You don't want to get your ha- any soil on your hands. I fear. Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to be in my uh, in a nice deck chair, uh, exactly. sipping lemonade, watching the gardeners. If you were given the sort of levers of power in the Jeffocracy, you're using um, a machine metaphor, Ed. Oh shoot! That's true. <laughs> I can't believe it. I, I like made the rookie mistake, didn't I? Uh, uh, if you were given the okay. wheelbarrow, if you were given the a sort of a, a seed budget, um, uh, the wheelbarrow, the spade, the rake, um, and any other sort of garden implements that you so chose, if you had power to 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 sort of change the way government worked, um, what would you do, Sue? So the way I change what my garden does is I walk around and look at it a lot. And I look at it all the time, different times of the day, different times of the year. And I think about it and then I try things out. So I guess that's what I would do. So I, you know, if I was a uh, prime minister, I would start having conversations with local government leaders about what they're doing. I would make all my people go off and find out about all the experiments that are going on and come back with some learning about what they need and what's getting in their way and what would help them. And I would create space for experiments and 
not necessarily try to close them down if they don't work straight away because most experiments don't but just increase the amount of learning well i think that is incredibly inspiring um uh jeff i assume sue's got the got the job absolutely gardener in chief i'd quite like some kind of water feature maybe a fish pond (laughs) yeah no of course it'd have to be a water feature otherwise they they, know they i've got newts in my pond and they're really important well look sue you've got the role of gardener uh in chief with added newts um sue goss it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation thank you so much for joining us a pleasure have a great day so to talk about what this different approach to public services might look like in practice i'm delighted to say that we're joined by katie kelly who is deputy chief executive of east ayrshire council and she leads the east ayrshire's vibrant communities approach katie thank you so much for joining us delighted to join you today Tell us, if you will, first of all, what's the story behind the change of approach to delivering services in East Ayrshire that you've been leading? Okay, so the story starts back probably in about 2011-12, and that was some of our first big challenges, fiscal challenges around uh, making some major savings. And we developed our first transformation strategy And one of the work streams of that was a really Monty Python-esque work stream called Transforming Our Relationship with the Communities We Serve. Um, But So what we wanted to do was actually, rather than just cut money out of the budget, we had to find about £35 million at the time. And that's quite a lot for us because we were a medium-sized authority, 120,000 people. So it was quite a big chunk out of our budget. And what we decided to do was really to be innovative and, and try and do something a bit different with our communities. We felt our relationship with our communities could be better, it could be stronger. They were very much passive recipients. There was a lot of dependency there. And also people felt quite disenfranchised. They found the council very hard to navigate. Also in Scotland at the time, um, the Christie Commission had published, which was the review, the review of, of, of public services. And that was so radical. It was brilliant. And at the very core of that was about people power. It was actually about uh, you know working alongside communities to do their, their very best for the people they serve. And public sector not having a a role um, to, to deliver direct and also be fixing their problems, but actually a role to enable the, their hopes and dreams. So that was a brilliant national strategic underpin. So as part of that transformation strategy back then, we did some, I, I led a really, really extensive engagement process, and it wasn't your usual one where we just took out a, a range of options and consulted. We went out and really asked people what they thought of us, and I spent time with hundreds of people individually in groups with workforce groups, frontline staff, and said, what do you think of this that we're doing just now? How are we at serving people? What could we do better? What could we do for you? And one of the messages that came out, and I'll never forget this, and it's probably really crucial, he said, and this chap said to me, Katie, there's real time and there's East Ayrshire time. Whenever we've got an idea or we're in crisis, how the hell do we navigate your systems? So we had brilliant engagement with people and we've got a real mix of people. There's quite a lot of, of people who are vulnerable in East Ayrshire. There's a real mix of rural and you know in, in, in urban areas. But people had a big voice in it and so did our workforce. And our workforce said to us at the front line, we want to do better, but we're not sure if we can. We don't feel empowered to do it. We don't feel it's okay to work beyond our job description. 
So we listened to people, they told us how they wanted it to be, they wanted us to be able to navigate us better, to do some things for themselves. And then the, probably the other thing that helped was um, Sir Harry Burns, Dr Sir Harry Burns was the Chief Medical Officer in Scotland at the time, and he was a very unusual guy. He talks about um, self-determination, and, and actually if you have power over your own life, you live happier, healthier and longer. And it doesn't cost anything to empower people or for people to take power and to have, you know, better control over their lives. So we, all of that we brought together and what we called the Vibrant Communities Approach. And it was never a department. It was never set up as a project. It was set up as a way of being. We did bring a, a range of staff together to help to enable the whole thing. To be initially about 120 staff back in 2013. It's grown exponentially since then. But we blurred the lines between the communities we serve and the people who serve them because in East Ayrshire, 74% of our workforce live locally, so they are the community. So why we were distinguishing between them was, was crazy. So that's the history of it. There was a compulsion to save money, a compulsion to reduce demand and, and come away from dependency, but a compulsion to help people be in control of their own lives and live a happy life. Talk to us about some of the main tangible things of vibrant communities then and what it's done you've already started to hint at it but but give us a give us a sense of how it works so so the, the, probably the kind of spine of it so you know a lot of people saying what does this actually mean you know is it just us getting on with communities better and I suppose that is part of it. I think our relationships with communities has improved greatly. We've got currency with communities now because they trust us more. One of the major approaches with communities in terms of community power was to enable communities to develop their own action plans. Now, they weren't council action plans with outcomes and bloody indicators and all of that. The community themselves did it, but we enabled it. So in East Asia, there's about 30 natural communities, um, you know, and they, they, they're in urban areas, but also small ex-mining mining communities or lace-making. So, the, so there's a whole range of different communities. And basically, we worked alongside them. We now have 21 community-led action plans. So people basically develop their own plan out round the doors and then they hold a great big listening event and everybody in their aunt turns up. We were getting four or five hundred people turning up because the council wasn't running it. It's often a donkey, sometimes kids <laughs> singing, there's grannies and people vote and we were actually getting a better turnout to those than we were at some of our elections, which is really ironic, you know, a better and people were voting for what they cared about. So what was in the plans? Well, really exciting was they tell, they're on the stage when they do the launch, the place is buzzing right and they're in the stage the community and the council's in the audience waiting to hear and it's quite scary and so they'll tell us what they hate about their community what they absolutely love about it what they can do for themselves and where they need our help and also what we should be doing to help them and maybe not doing and so what's come out of that um, probably the most tangible thing many more community events than we've ever seen massive numbers of volunteers it's manifested itself in community asset transfer. That's one of the biggest ones where 55 of the council's properties now, everything from a golf course, a community centre, football pavilion, even at a secondary school, we've actually passed them over to the community to run. And we've saved 1.6 million. And the community are running them better than us. Much better, and we're happy to say it. They're fuller, they're busier, they're in better condition. The communities themselves have attracted maybe six, seven million pounds in external funding that we couldn't have got near, and we haven't left them in the lurch. And so actually we invested 1.4 million in those facilities before we handed them over. So for everyone there was a deal done. So that's one manifestation, but the other manifestation of this community power work has been, I'm excited and all of the teams in council are because 
it, it helps us to do our job better. It helps us to serve well. And it's been game changing, you know. T- tell us a bit more about that. Tell us a bit more about what it's done for people working at the council. Because is it empowered staff as well as people in the community? Absolutely. So we, we recognised that we had to actually run in parallel with, with, with a, a, a kind of workforce empowerment or this wouldn't work. And so, you know, when we did that initial engagement, people were saying they were afraid to do things for people to serve or because it wasn't their job description or what if they get into trouble. But actually, you know, the empowered workforce we've got are outstanding now. We've got people that go above and beyond. We've got bin men that aren't afraid to help a wee lady in with dementia now if they find her wandering about. We've got people that the job description is now secondary. The first thing our people do is to serve. And they've really enjoyed ripping up policies that we've written that are no longer relevant. The best example I can give you, we started at one of the hardest places for impairment, and that was our outdoor services team. These are the guys that cut the grass, dig the graves, cut down the trees, and they're really grumpy. And I sat down with them and said, come on, we want to do something different. Take away. They said to me, we don't need all these bosses. And I said, right, OK. Well, we don't need as many bosses. Let's let's de-stratify. If you can do it for yourself and your own, your own thing, be an empowered team. And actually, we, we, we called their bluff a wee bit and there was a bit of kind of worry about it. But actually, it, as time has gone on, they love doing their own. They've got power to make decisions. So our outdoor teams are now in five hubs um, and they work closely with the community to send what we'll do with the land and there, what bit they'll, they'll cut. They've given packs to communities to cut grass and do things themselves, resilience packs. Um, they, they do stuff together around planting. Some of the guys that, that have been doing the same thing their whole life love their job now. Um, you know, one Friday, as a deputy chief exec, a, a picture arrived in my inbox and I did a busy day and I opened it. And there was the Cumnock hub. These guys all sitting, they just cut all the grass in a big park in Cumnock and they said, Katie, here is the happy, empowered Cumnock hub. Nobody was telling them what to do. It's moving away from an adult-child relationship Command and control. All of the public services were set up after the war and command and control was the way to go. It worked. It was safe. We won a war. But actually, it, it treats people as children and, and permission culture sets in. So when you take away that permission culture and say, right, do the right thing to serve, to be honest with you, we've not had any calamities. People were worried about the risk, but we, we, we carefully understood that. And do you know what? Most people want to do good. That's the basis of our work. We, we say people at the heart of everything we do, every decision, and, and that's what's happened. I mean, isn't there, isn't there something absolutely fascinating here, Katie? And again, it is just so inspiring to talk to you that it's not simply the community had untapped resources because you've spoken eloquently about that, but you've spoken equally eloquently about the untapped resources of the council employees as well. Absolutely. Do you know, that this whole thing about, we, we talk to, to our employees about, and it sounds a bit fluffy this, but gifts of the head and the hand and the heart. What, what makes your heart sing? I'd prefer to have a, an employee do their job that, that was suited to their personality. And what I've realised over these years and working closely with big frontline workforces, they want, they want to do their very best, but they've got so much to offer. So, so yes unlocking skills and talents and also helping people to believe that that it's okay to be themselves at work it can't have all been plain sailing though katie what's been the hardest thing um in this process 
Oh, it's been it's been a real challenge. Some of it, you know, I've got bruises. I've got a lot of bruises along the way. There's, this is definitely not uh, motherhood and apple pie. I think to begin with, bringing elected members with us at the very start, and then understanding that using community-led action planning wasn't threatening their position of elected member, but actually was enhancing it. So they've embraced it, but politically to begin with, it was challenging. The bit about um, reducing facilities was hard because it was presented as a separate work stream to begin with. So alongside vibrant communities, there was this other work stream called property and estate rationalisation. And I brought that into vibrant communities, but at the time it was like the toxic arm of the Royal Bank of Scotland. Do you remember it took all the debts? I kept saying, oh shit, I don't want that. I'm positive. But actually then say, and so people then thought, oh, this vibrant community thing is just to cut things and shut things. And actually, it took a lot of trust and a few burning torches before people realised that we weren't going to give them the keys and run away. We were going to stay with them. We were going to invest. So it was very relational. And how do you measure your, I hate to use the word performance because it's taken on a sort of rather toxic sort of nature. But how do you measure how you're doing, Katie? What's what's the best way of, of seeing how the impact it's had in your book? So in my book, this has been very interesting. We used to get it all the time from the Scottish government. How do you know these plans are working and how do you measure them? And I said, well, they're not our plans. You know, where's the outcomes? Where's the indicators? But the communities, have, they, they, they carry, they've done their own work. I'll tell you, our residents panel and our surveys that we've done have gone way up. So we know people like us better. So that's good because that means we're serving better. And I suppose from my point of view, if people uh, through our surveys that we do with them and our trust with them, is better than that. That's all we need in terms of performance. So I suppose how do I measure it? Saving money, better satisfaction, better attendance by the employees, people happier, and also a bit the trust thing is so important. We can do more. We can go further because we've, we've got some trust there. Uh, Katie Kelly, thank you so much uh, for joining us. You're doing incredibly inspiring things in East Ayrshire. Thank you very much. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
We're going to talk now to Adam Lent, who is Chief Executive of New Local, which is a think tank and network of councils working to develop community power. Adam, hello. I'm sure you can do a much better job of describing it than I can. Tell, tell us about New Local. Tell us what you do. Uh, no, that was a really good description, <laughs> word for word. I mean, we are a think tank, so we do loads of research on uh, this idea of community power. But we are a network of around about 60 councils and other organisations who are trying to actually put that idea into practice as well. And, and yeah, what was it that um, made you see that there was a need for this research? It really started by us looking at the state of public services in the country and they're not in a great state. There's all sorts of problems with uh, public services. And one of the really big problems, which has been going on for years now, is just the level of demand on things like healthcare, council services, police services, anything you name. The level of demand just keeps on rising. And there's a general view that we need to move away from public services, which are really all about what you could call like emergency response. We wait for people to get sick or we wait for people to get into trouble or families to get into crisis before we respond. And really, we need to move towards a preventative model where we actually stop people getting sick, stop people getting into crisis. And really, through that research, we began to recognise that actually, if you want to be preventative, you have to mobilise communities, you have to encourage communities to take more responsibility for their health and well-being, rather than just sort of being there as a parent ready to help those children out there when they get into trouble. And how, how did we get to the point we're at with public services? It's stuck in between two rather old-fashioned models of how public services need to be delivered. So there's a, there's a state model which basically says the state is this parent, if you like, and everyone out there is a child who needs looking after and caring for. Um, and that really was, I suppose, the model that grew up around, you know, after the war in the post-war period. And then there's this other model, which is this market model, which says that public services need to operate more like a business, treat everyone out there like customers and get private businesses more involved, and public services need to operate more like a market. And neither of those are at all well-suited to the world as it is today. They're not well-suited to moving towards this preventative approach. But also, I think more fundamentally, they don't actually respect the fundamental rights of local communities to have a real say over how their lives are run, the decisions that are taken on their behalf and how services look uh, for them in their areas. It's really those two models that have got us to the, the condition that public services are in. And it really is time for something new now. We, you know, we think that, that that new thing is community power. Well, let's talk about this idea of community power. Can, can you lay out what it is for us um, and, and why you think it should in, underpin how the state acts? The basic idea is that communities should have you know, the respect, the power and the resources to look after their own affairs uh, far more than they currently do. And that, to put that into more practical terms, I think that extends to two big areas, what sometimes at New Local we talk about as being macro decisions and micro decisions. So the macro decisions are the big strategic policy decisions that national government takes, that local government takes, that the health service takes. You know, normally very senior, powerful people take these decisions. And we argue those decisions not only need to be taken at a much more local level, but they also need to be taken in a much more open, participatory 
deliberative type approach so that local communities actually have a real say over those decisions that affect their lives. But then we also talk about the micro decisions. So these are the millions of decisions that frontline public sector workers and others take every day in how they interact with service users, how they deliver services. And those also need to shift. And there's really interesting stuff going on in the public sector now about working far more collaboratively with families and others who need the support of the public sector, really putting them in the driving seat. And Adam, if you were um, giving us, giving our listeners to paint the picture a bit in a bit more detail, giving our listeners examples of community power and practice what would you point to what are, what are what are a couple of good examples that you'd point to maybe of maybe of each of those approaches that you're talking about so there's a, a great uh, initiative in fleetwood uh, which is a, a a town up on the uh, northwest coast and it's an initiative called healthier fleetwood and it's basically been launched by uh, a GP uh, in the area, Mark Spencer, who was really tired of just sitting in his surgery all day, writing prescriptions out for the same people month after month. So he has really gone out into the community and mobilised the community and encouraged them to get really active in looking after their own health and well-being. And it is just amazing what they've done. I mean, dozens of groups have been set up to help men with mental health issues groups to help people with facing isolation, groups to help people um, with obesity. Um, And some of the groups are not things we automatically see as being about health. So one of the most popular groups is literally a group that gets loads of people together every week to have a great big sing-song. It's just like, you know, but it's amazing in terms of the impact it has on people's mental health, has an impact on obesity. And what's amazing is that in Fleetwood, the number of people going to A&E has dropped because there's this like community leading and working together to address their health concerns. So that's like one of the really fantastic example. Uh, another one I'd give, which may be sort of slightly more formal example of that, is something called the Essex Recovery Foundation. So this is Essex County Council have set up an organisation outside of the council, um, and they're giving that organisation all of the budget that the council traditionally, conventionally holds to help people recovering from alcohol and drug uh, misuse. Um, But the really exciting thing is that that organisation is going to be almost entirely run and delivered by people in recovery themselves. So it's basically that community of people in recovery in Essex coming together to oversee that service and deliver that service because basically, in the end, what the council has recognised, and this is at the heart of community power, those people know best what they need, and they're the best people to help other people overcome uh, those challenges. I mean, that's just two examples. There are, like, loads all over the country and sort of growing all the time. Now, when David Cameron was prime minister, he uh, came up with something called uh, a sort of political concept called the big society, and, you know, what a lot of people have said about that is the problem is it seemed to be, in the end, an excuse for the state to cut its funding and to sort of, if you like, devolve responsibility slash blame for a lot of issues to sort of either the community or voluntary groups. Talk to us about how what you're proposing is different from that. I, I think they're very, very different concepts. Um, I think the big society was... 
um, maybe deliberately or maybe not deliberately, a very naive concept. It was this idea that, um, you know, the state could withdraw, you could withdraw welfare support, and then charities and social enterprises would sort of magically rush in and fill the vacuum. Community power, I think, is a very different thing. Community power accepts that the state has a really important role to play, is absolutely vital to addressing the challenges we face as a society, but that it needs to operate in a different way. It also, and we're very clear about this at New Local, very vocal, you know, this is not an alternative to funding the state properly. There is a real serious problem of funding uh, in public services in this country, particularly the welfare state and local government who have suffered very badly. And local government have lost something like 50% of their funding since 2010, yeah? And presumably, I mean, this is not... This is not a sort of, as you say, this is not an alternative to them being funded properly. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, that, that funding has to be put in place. And it, so this is not an alternative to funding. The state is vital, but the state still needs to work in a different way if it's going to move to prevention and if it's going to respect the rights of local communities to have a say over their own lives. I mean, presumably part of the motivation of this, and, I, and I've been interested in your work for some time, is that... If we are sort of believers in making a more equal society, how you go about that and how that is delivered also must speak to that belief. In other words, if you're if you think your method of delivering an equal society is the state simply sort of delivering it to people, A, it's probably not going to work and B, it's not really true to your principles. So so part of what you're talking about is changing that relationship, isn't it? So that so that you kind of you practice the principles of equality, not just in the outcomes you're trying to get, but the way you get there. Absolutely right. And I think the big problem with the that sort of traditional social democratic model of the state, which was very top down, uh, was that it robbed people of agency. It robbed people of a sense of power over their own lives. It was like, hand yourself over to us as expert public servants and will look after you. And that's a terribly demeaning, disempowering thing to do to people. The other thing I would say, and I think this is so overlooked when we talk about these issues, is that the way that equality was delivered in the past was so fragile. You know, the the social democratic post-war consensus, that greater period of equality, only lasted for about 30 years before... Thatcherism took hold and reversed so much had been done. It was very fragile because if you deliver everything from Westminster and from the top, it can be reversed from Westminster and from the top. What we want to do with community power is embed voice and power and equality actually in society, in local communities. And if we can really achieve that, it'll be far harder to reverse than a purely state-led top-down model. We we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the sort of benign dictator in this case taking no this part would be me doing my bit i would be it, turning it, over it, power it, it, exactly i was gonna say in this case doing no no nothing himself for community power but but there's a really important sort of um question in this which is you know you and 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 me and others to a certain extent have, to have talked about good local examples of this for some time but then the question always becomes, how do you actually make this, how do you scale this up nationally? You know, how do you extend community power across all communities? 
So I think one thing we've got to do is stop thinking about scaling up. <laughs> I think this idea that there is there are these great examples and innovations in one part of the country and all we need to do is take those and drop them into another part of the country. Community power is a set of principles, a mindset and ethos, which is about handing power and resource over and respecting communities' rights. I mean, there's also a, a couple of bits of legislation, I think, that are needed as well, which I could sort of mention. Um, I mean, one is... There's a great campaign at the moment for something called Community Wealth Fund, which is inspired by another great community power initiative called Big Local. That's to set up a really big fund using the money from dormant assets to, fund, to put money directly into communities to, become, to, to make community power happen. And then I think also we need something like a big landmark piece of legislation like a Community Rights Act which recognise that local communities do have fundamental rights to self-determination, to a decent environment, decent economy, that sort of thing. And I think what would flow from that, one thing, is the devolution of power. You know, there's too much power held in Whitehall, far too much. That needs to be devolved down to local level so that it can be handed over to communities to do the right thing with. Well, look, um, Adam Lent, uh you're doing really, really important work at New Local. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed that. So what did you think? Oh, my God. I mean, what an exciting bunch of conversations. I feel slightly wired after them. Uh, do you not feel there was so much positivity I know, and energy I know. and great I know. examples I know. of this working? Something it reminded me as, as we were talking When we first started doing the podcast, after about six months or a year, I remember thinking, oh, there are some themes that come up, even if it's not necessarily what the episode is about, but there are things that come up time and time again. And one of those things was decentralisation of power. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Why why are we so centralised in this country? Well, I think part of it is a history where parts of the left were... Were, were very keen to like the state having power and getting their hands on the levers of the state a bit like what sue was talking about and then the right was very suspicious of local government and you know sort of what what local democracy might mean but i'm not i i, I you're you're asking me a really good question because i'm not quite sure why it was so different from other countries uh, in terms of our experience. But it is definitely true that we are a deeply centralised place. I tell you what's really interesting for me. I mean, it, in a way, there's so much that comes out of these conversations. Uh, and you say, you know, we f- you can feel, almost feel wired by them. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting, which I think a couple of people referred to, but particularly Katie, is this notion that when it really works, it's quite hard to tell who's the state and who's the community. right. I thought that's a very interesting idea. And it slightly relates to my experience in Doncaster during the floods of 2019, which is, you know, that was obviously a moment of real crisis. And when the response really worked, uh, and I can think of a place called Bentley in my constituency where it really, really felt like this. You know, at the beginning, it was really tricky. But but over time, you, you got to the stage where it wasn't really... You didn't think, well, they work for the council and they're a member of the local community. It was almost like people merged into one and were working together. And I think that's the I think that's the art of this, which is, you know, it's not about 
the state doing things to people it is genuinely and it sounds a bit fluffy this but i think it's real and i think east Ayrshire shows that it's a it's genuinely about sort of people working together but i thought there was so much kind of food for thought in this convo- in these conversations all three of them yeah it's what this podcast is about in microcosm and i'm definitely up for going for a sing song in fleetwood if you are you're on you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd if you've got thoughts on what you've heard about the state and the citizen, uh, about gardening, about Jeff and his um, resistance to getting involved, please do get in touch with us. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. We read uh, every email and we really enjoy reading out the nice ones. Uh, this is this comes from uh, Elise Belcher. And this is both nice, but it's also you know, deeply worrying. And the subject is Spotify 2020, recount the votes. Ed and Jeff, I call fake news and foul play. What? Yep. Spotify have released listeners' 2020 lists, a summary of what they've tuned into over the last year. You get the most listened to songs, genre, artists, etc. I faithfully listen to Reasons to be Cheerful and have listened to every episode in the last year. Given that it is a only weekly occurrence and with time on my hands this year... I thought I should try and branch out. I tuned into four podcasts on humanitarian aid, cycling and football, but only listened to one or two episodes each. They were a bit boring. I was shocked to find that my most listened to podcast was not Reasons to be Cheerful. What? What? But Bike Life, followed by the other three, Cheerful didn't even get a mention. Am I the only one? Do we need to launch a campaign to make sure Spotify properly counts the votes? Thanks for the podcast. I thoroughly enjoy it and learn a lot from it. It definitely makes me and keeps me cheerful. Elise, I am horrified. Well, I want to make sure that every legal vote is counted. It seems to me there's a lot of illegal podcast listening going on. Um, and I, I want to make sure it's all counted. I can't, not, should they sh- stop the count or should they do a recount? Well, yeah, as a second best. Uh, this, this is a great email. This comes from Kieran who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I recently entered an essay competition run by Pembroke College, Oxford with the question of what is fair. After listening to your podcast on the meritocracy with Michael Sandel, I decided to base my essay on his ideas and worldview. A f- few weeks later, it turns out that I won. I'd like to thank you for bringing such a great range of ideas to the spotlight and for producing such an amazing podcast. Thank you, says Kieran, who's 17. Kieran, I hope uh, there was a thank you speech and you you thanked us well i must say that i think i think kieran has done d- done kieran's bit by by sending us the email to say thank you we're, we're delighted no it's brilliant we're delighted for you kieran we don't it's not about us claiming the credit jeff is it i mean no, but it's nice to have a bit of credit though isn't it <laughs> well maybe there wasn't a speech <laughs> okay fair enough then uh, maybe, look, maybe he could t- maybe he could tweet about it i think you've sort of i think you've turned like kieran's lovely email into a sort of you know <laughs> into a kind of thing really here send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. well here we are in the outro you're off to the muppets I am off to the Muppets. Oh, I meant to um, I meant to congratulate you. Go on. Well, just because, you know, you're in a different age group to I am. I, I know that you'll be getting the vaccine before I will. So I just wanted to say I'm, I'm pleased for you as one of the older members of society. I thought you might have been referring to my incident with 
being asked about scotch eggs on television earlier this week. Oh, I, this, this passed you by. It did because I'm not on Twitter at the moment. So uh, what, what happened? Well, I was asked about scotch egg, and I made a sort of amusing and droll self-referential joke comparing nice. Nice. pork-related products. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Indeed, it is. Um, I, I'm not quite sure that's the way I think about it. <laughs> Shall we um, thank our guests? Yes. Um, who were who were all uh, fan dabby dozy? Um, uh, I'd like to thank Sue Goss, Katie Kelly, and Adam Lent. And I want to say thank you this week, especially to our producer Emma Corsham. I mean, she's got a work cut out for her this week, hasn't she, Ed? Well, yeah, because I've had sort of technological gremlins. Yeah. Yes. Bad, bad gremlins. I mean, it's never your strong suit, but this week you've really excelled yeah. yourself. So, yeah, well, uh, thank you very much. She, she will have this sounding seamless. So, thank you, Emma. Uh, thanks to uh, Joel Pierce, who does all the research. He is the brains in this organisation. How does he do it week in, week out? Well, he has support from Fanula DC and Zoe Galber and Joe Kenyon. Thanks to our friends at Left Foot Forward. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been collecting twigs. He's been wheeling his wheelbarrow through streets wide and narrow. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.